Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. My name is Shannon Riley. I am here with you once again, on, as I am every Sunday, to talk about the greatest playwright who ever lived, William Shakespeare. And right now, I'm on my quest to talk about each individual play when it was written in the order we believe it was written as I go forward talking about Shakespeare and his works. And we're up to his fifth play today, which is another history by the name of Edward III. All right, Edward III. How many of you love that? Everybody just sitting back watching Edward III when you were a kid? Uh, show of hands, how many people have seen Edward III multiple times? It's radio, I can't see your hands, but nobody's seen Edward III. It's probably the least played show of Shakespeare's career. Why? Well, I'm going to talk about that. Edward III is really not a well-known play. Edward III is another one of his histories. As I mentioned, he was still starting to write histories. This being his fifth play, he's still in the history kick. And once again, it's believed that this play was not solely written by William Shakespeare, but indeed was written by a group of playwrights who were working together to publish this play. Now, why Edward III? And, and why is it so unknown in terms of Shakespeare's plays? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One, it was banned from the English stages very early in 1604, 1605, which we're going to talk about in a second. The other thing is, is a lot of people just doubted it was written by Shakespeare. Most Shakespearean publishers believe that it wasn't even Shakespeare's play and wasn't recognized as part of his official canon until as late as 1990. Now, that's amazing. So why? Why do they think this wasn't a Shakespearean play? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first one is, is it wasn't involved in the first or second folio printings. Well, that could be explained by the fact that when they started to publish all of Shakespeare's plays, it was hard to remember all the plays that truly were his, and finding them as copies was also a very difficult thing. But we do know it was published in 1594, probably written between 1591 and 1593. Remember, Shakespeare didn't arrive in London until the early 1590s. So this is a very early play of his at all, if he had done any part of it. It was published anonymously. This is not uncommon. The same thing was said about Richard III. When it was first published, it was published anonymously. Elizabethans didn't necessarily care who wrote the play, in the beginning anyway. They just cared whether or not it was a good play to have, a good play to read. So when it was published in 1594, it had no author accredited. And that could be because there were multiple authors who were accredited to writing Edward III. So why did he write Edward III? I'm going to get into that as soon as we do first our 
Shakespeare quote of the week, my boy. Take it away. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. The quote of the week for Edward III is, It is a glorious thing to establish peace. And kings approach the nearest unto God by giving life and safety unto men. Act 5, scene 1. Not a bad quote. Hey, by the way, I wanted to talk about something. I got asked the other day why I'm not doing the Shakespeare Book of the Week anymore. And that's because as I started working on all of these plays, I started to think... The play is the book of the week. What I'd really like to see people do, if you really want to, is as I talk about Edward III or any other plays that I feature each week, take a look at that play, read it through, see what you think about it, and see if what I say about it makes any sense to you. But the book of the week from here until we finish working through the works is going to be that play that I'm offering that week. The other thing I have been failing to do, though, is the Shakespeare fun fact. So here it is for you. The Shakespeare fun fact for today is that Shakespeare believed spelling was optional. Oh, boy, is he after my own heart when he says that. Matter of fact, Shakespeare spelled his name seven different ways on documents that have still survived to this day, and none of them are the way we spell it. In fact, spelling of Shakespeare's name has appeared over 80 different variations that has appeared over the generations. So Shakespeare himself spelled it differently, as did his contemporaries. Why? Because spelling was unimportant to the Elizabethans. They viewed it as, if you got my meaning, you understood it, why worry about spelling it? And it's this misspelling or choice of spelling of Shakespeare's words that help us really identify what Shakespeare wrote. He tended to use the same words over and over again. He tended to use the same spelling of those words over and over again. As well as he had a colloquialism that can best be described as a northern country sound. Now think of America. We have all kinds of different dialects across our country. Uh, in the South, there's a strong dialect. You could argue that in California, there's a strong dialect. The Pacific Northwest, the East, the Midwest, there's a lot of different dialects. And the way we talk is also the way we write. And Shakespeare's dialect came through in his writing. And it's been kind of a thumbprint as to whether or not Shakespeare wrote what and when. Keep in mind that the dictionary was not published in America until 1775. Now, there was a 1604 dictionary, but it wasn't really all that well-known in England. Oxford didn't have a dictionary until 1884. So there really is a sense of, as long as you understand what I'm talking about, then I've gotten the point across to you. So the spelling of Shakespeare's name and his use of language helps us pick a thumbprint and know what he wrote and what he didn't. And that's going to come up later in our program today, too. But first, I want to try and tell you what happens in this place. So if I give you a quick synopsis, then we can build on it when we come out on the other side of the break. First of all, Edward becomes king around the age of 14. Uh, he has to lead a coup against his own mother to really become king, though, in, uh, when he's about 17 years old. He became king and stayed king for over 50 years. He is the second longest reigning medieval king, and this is around the mid-1300s, to rule England. And he's the father of Richard II, who begins the second tetralogy of Shakespeare's canon. Richard II, which leads into Henry IV, part one and two, and of course, Henry V, one of his most celebrated histories. So this is possibly something that could fit in with that historical timeline. However, it doesn't really, because all of the other plays they talk about the king and his reign 
throughout its entirety. It's hard to encapsulate 50 years in one play. So here we see a play that really captures only one short period of time, and that was the start of the Hundred Years of War. Remember I said in a previous episode that the tetralogies were Shakespeare's greatest gift to the histories. He built these long narratives. Edward doesn't really fit into that tetralogy, even though he's the father of Richard, mainly because he encapsulates a short period of a very lengthy life rather than the whole life of that particular monarch as he does in most of the other plays. Now, I'm going to take you now to play itself and talk a little bit about what happens in Edward III. First of all, Edward believes he is the proper king of not only England, but France. He's a Plantagenet king, meaning he came from French stock. He speaks French. The common language in the court is French. His mother was Philippa of France, sister to King Philip of France, who passes away without an heir. When he passes away without an heir, certainly, then our dear friend Edward decides, oh, I'm the next heir. I'm going to be king of France and England. So he declares that he is, and of course, Francis bukes him and says, no, you are not. In fact, you need to come and pay homage to our new king and accept him as a ruler of France. Well, he refuses, and instead, he decides to invade France and starts the 100 Years War. All of that is historically accurate. However, the play bogs down shortly after it starts. You see, Scotland and France have a great alliance, and Scotland has been invading northern England and attacking small villages along the border. So Edward, before he can take off of France to try to conquer France, he has to first put down the Scottish rebels. He heads north and he puts down the Scottish rebels. Actually, rather quickly, he subdues King David of Scotland, who runs and hides. King David of Scotland. Doesn't really sound like a Scottish name, but that's the name. Nevertheless, as he puts down this rebellion, he stays in a castle where he finds the Countess of Salisbury. And this is where the play gets bogged down. He falls madly in love with the Countess of Salisbury. She's married, he's married, and he begs her to bed with him. She refuses, saying it would uh, ruin the sanctity of both their marriages, but he is persistent and consistent. To try and throw him off, the Countess says, I'll tell you what, if you kill your wife and I kill my husband, then we can bed together. Then she realizes the king is kind of into this idea and he's willing to pull it off. So finally she says, I will bed you only if I can first kill myself. That's the only thing I will do to save myself from ruining the sanctity of my marriage. Edward agrees, realizes that he has been wrong to pursue her so greedily, and says from now on he will dedicate himself to his wife, his marriage, and his growing power in France. This is not historically accurate, and I'll talk about that on the other side, but it does kind of bogged down the play for a while as we're doing this. Meantime, Edward has a son, Edward the Black Prince. And Edward the Black Prince is a very powerful, very strong fighter. He's a nobleman with a great deal of battle experience. Edward the Black Prince and King Edward III launch separate attacks into France. This is where the play splits again. While we say, see King Edward marching his troops in one direction, we see Edward the Black Prince marching his troops in another direction. At one point, he is surrounded and he is easily going to be defeated by the French. So word is sent to King Edward, please come and help your son because he is about to be overrun. King Edward refuses and says if he can't win on battle, he doesn't deserve to be the future King of England. So Edward is left on his own. 
The play bounces between Edward the Black Prince's speeches within his camp and the French king, King John, in his camp. They, you see a noble, kind, considerate prince who is considering the morality of war in one camp and an arrogant French leader in the other. The battle is joined and Prince Edward is victorious even captures King John and takes him as a prisoner to see King Edward himself, who was fighting at Calais. Meanwhile, King Edward is fighting at Calais and his overwhelming forces look like they're going to take this city. He demands that in order to stop the siege, six of the noblest men among his enemies must come to him with nooses around their neck in tribute kneel down, swear loyalty to King Edward, and then they will be hung for their treason immediately. It's all a game to King Edward. He wants to see not only victory in France, but he wants to see them humiliated. Sure enough, without any choice, the citizens of Calais offer up six of their most powerful noblemen and send them out with tribute and nooses around their neck. They kneel in the dirt before King Edward and beg forgiveness for standing against him as they did, protecting their own city. Suddenly, his queen is there, and queen says, please, do not kill these wonderful men. Show mercy to them, show clemency, and Edward grants them clemency. It's all a great big show, just to gain the support and the trust of the French people that he will be a noble and just leader when he conquers all of France. Just at that moment, who should come but Edward the Black Prince bring along with him the King of France, King John II, in chains. The victory goes to Edward that day. Also, who should come but Sir John Copeland, coming all the way from England with his prisoner, King David of Scotland. Now, this play ends with Edward III being King of England, Scotland, Ireland, and a good portion of France. The play ends with everybody entering into the city of Calais in jubilation and great triumph as they have succeeded in a way that no man before King Edward ever has or ever will. And that's the end of the play. This is not a great play. It encompasses so many situations and battles that were separated by over decades that he puts together into one play. Now, Shakespeare is very common for really collapsing the time of the play, collapsing the events that happened, even who would have been there at that time. If you remember correctly, the King of France isn't King John II. At the top of the play is King Philip VI. But Philip dies and is replaced by King John, and practically no explanation for that is given in the play whatsoever. Shakespeare expects his audience to know the history and what happened, and they did. We don't. So, Edward III was a relatively mild success, but not a very good play. And by 1603, it is banned for the British stage. Why? Well, I'm going to talk about that on the other side. You're listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF785Live.com, digital radio. I am really lucky to be here. I really appreciate this station allowing a humble man like me to come on and blather about his favorite playwright. That's the story of King Edward III. When we come back from our quick break here, I'm going to give you the story behind the story and why Shakespeare probably didn't even want to write this play in the first place. See you on the other side. Be right back. And we 
we are back. Hello again. I'm Shannon Riley from Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. And you are listening to Shannon J. Riley as I talk about all of the wonderful things William Shakespeare wrote. By the way, I want to hear from you. If you've got a question or a thought or you want to share some ideas about the program, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's ShannonJRiley.com, R-E-I-L-L-Y.com. I'd love to hear from any of you out there, answer any of your questions, or even hear some suggestions for the show. And by the way, while you're at ShannonJRiley.com, please feel free to check out some of my short films, some of my plays, and uh, spread it around. I'd love to see more theaters being involved in these plays. You know, I feel like sometimes I really fly through the synopsis of the play and I feel like I kind of have to because this is only a half hour show and try try to boil down a Shakespearean play in just 10 minutes is really really hard but I want to because I want to talk about what's the stuff on the other side of the play that makes it so much interesting now I mentioned that it was probably published around 1594 what we don't know is who did this play could it have been done by the Lord Chamberlain's men, which eventually become Shakespeare's main company? Or was he still a freelancer? Maybe what was done by one of the many other performing companies. The bigger question is why he wrote the play. And for that, there's some really interesting theories. First of all, Shakespeare has had some success with his first tetralogy, particularly Richard III. Richard III blows the doors off of theaters. It becomes a very popular show among audiences. Other playwrights were out there writing histories at this time, but Richard III really becomes a play above and beyond the histories that had gone before him. Now, again, he probably didn't write Richard III alone, but this is probably his greatest work so far. Edward III is a step back from that. It is not quite written completely by William Shakespeare. As a matter of fact, less than 40% by some projections was really written by Shakespeare. So why did he write it? For that, you have to go back to another playwright, a very powerful playwright by the name of Christopher Marlowe. Now, Marlowe was an amazing talent. Even if you look at anything that was written at the time Shakespeare was alive, that Marlowe was indeed the greatest star of the playwright set working in England at this time. Marlowe was young, he was brash, he was completely out there as a homosexual, which was a dangerous thing to be since homosexuals could be put in prison just for being who they are. But Marlowe didn't worry about it. Marlowe was under the pay of the crown, and many people believe he was really a spy who was working within the arts to try to recognize anyone who might have been an outstanding enemy of the state. Regardless of that, he was immensely popular, not only among audiences, but among other theater companies and playwrights. His plays were celebrated, and it's quite possible that Shakespeare and Marlowe developed a strong friendship, as well as with a lot of other playwrights. Well, Christopher Marlowe had written a play entitled Edward II. Now, he does this around the time that Shakespeare is putting out Richard III, and Edward II is a huge hit. It is almost as big a hit as Richard III. The story of Edward II is is pretty sad, and I I don't want to waste time on that here, but he was a a king who was very maligned. Nevertheless, Marlowe dies. Around 1594, Marlowe is found dead. They say he was killed in a bar fight over a check, or they say he was killed in a duel. They really don't know. But in truth was, a lot of people believed, even then, that he was assassinated by the crown. 
Edward II might have been Marlowe's attempt to start his own tetralogy, or at least a series of plays about the crown. And some have speculated that he left behind Edward III unfinished, and that the playwrights, his friends, wanted to finish it for him. I can't prove this. One article I read even said that Shakespeare was so jealous of Edward II that he wanted to write Edward III to show up Marlowe. I find that to be kind of silly, particularly since he didn't do it alone. I think it makes more sense that a bunch of playwrights got together and said, let's help finish this play that Marlowe began. And so they wrote Edward III. And they wrote it in so quickly and in such a short period of time of Edward's reign. Remember, he reigned for about 50 years, so it's really hard to encapsulate five decades in one two-hour-long play. So they pick one particular place, which Marlowe probably picked for his starting point, and that was the start of the Hundred Years' War. As I mentioned before, Edward was a Plantagenet. He spoke French. He was from France. The Plantagenets ruled in England for over 300 years during the Middle Ages, but this is towards the end of the Plantagenet reign. Edward III is a Plantagenet. His son, Richard II, is also a Plantagenet, and Richard III is a Plantagenet. But they're replaced by the Tudors after that. So we're near the end of the Plantagenet reign, where French was the language in court. Everybody spoke French. Edward himself viewed himself as a king of Britain, but a Frenchman. And so it seems natural that he would want to gain control of France himself. Well, it wasn't only about the crown. Matter of fact, many people believe there's no way that he ever would have been able to claim the throne. It was more about the Scots. And the Scots were rebellious, and they were in a great alliance with France. For the French, this is great. They could do battle with the English without ever having to sully their hands. They could just send the Scots at them. And the Scots loved the fact that another superpower at that time was helping them fight against this amazingly powerful powerhouse of a country, England, under Edward III. And England was a powerhouse under Edward III. It had the largest military. It had the largest navy. Edward had really built up a very strong and powerful nation in England. So more than anything else, Edward wanted to end this alliance with the Scots. And he starts to attack into Scotland to try to break up this ragtag group that keeps doing skirmishes across the border. There is a chance he did indeed come across the Countess of Salisbury. Matter of fact, many historians believe that this was a woman who became quite infatuated with, and not only infatuated with, that he eventually raped. Shakespeare doesn't treat this story that way. He treats them as two young lovers who almost came together but decided this was not a right thing to do. This is the whitewashing that Shakespeare does of British history to try to make the king look a little bit cleaner than he truly was. But it is true that Edward had a son by the name of Edward the Black Prince. Edward the Black Prince was indeed a powerful and amazing military leader who had great success in military campaigns into France at both Cressy and Poitiers. He was able to do this, but, but they were, these battles were decades apart. Edward the Black Prince was sure to inherit the crown from Edward III. Unfortunately, he developed dysentery and died a year before Edward III did, leaving the way for his younger brother, Richard II, to gain the crown after the death of Edward III. And we're going to talk about Richard II because his play is coming up very shortly as Shakespeare starts his second tetralogy. 
Once again, Shakespeare changes names. He changes people. He makes King John II of France his main adversary, when in truth, King John really became an adversary very late in this early campaign. And King John II was indeed captured by Edward the Black Prince, and he was taken back to London. A very sad note about him was that King John II was held in ransom in England, and he was held there for the rest of his life because he could never raise the money to pay his ransom to go back home. France never paid the ransom, so the man died in prison in England. They just picked a new king. But this ransom of noblemen, this war, the Hundred Years' War, which lasted over 100 years, it was around 115, 120 years, I think, the war became so important between France and England that it drove their economy. They needed the war to keep going because it filled their coffers with ransoms and booty that they raised and things that they stole from each other that both kingdoms really had very little reason to stop the fight. What really did bring about the end of the Hundred Years' War were two things. First, the Black Death. It was spreading across Europe. And when you had people fighting in battles on the battlegrounds of France and England, they were giving it to each other and they were dying from the disease. It was getting harder and harder to raise an army. And in fact, the Hundred Years' War had to take several pauses during that time while people just pulled back and waited for the virus to run its cause and then started their campaign once again. The second thing that really did a lot of damage was the War of the Roses. Now, as I mentioned, Edward III started the Hundred Years' War. He's replaced by Richard II, who is an abysmal leader for England. He is replaced by Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV. And Henry is replaced by Henry V, who does the job and finally conquers most of France and is even in control of large areas of France when he takes the crown. But then Henry dies, and he's replaced by Henry VI, which I talked about in the first tetralogy, who was too religious, too milquetoast, and unable to hold together his kingdom and keep it from slipping into civil war. That was a civil war between the Plantagenets, which were the House of York, and the Lancasters. And these two battle for control of England, which leads eventually to Henry VII, or Henry Tudor, taking on Richard III in a battle winning and becoming King of England. All of that takes place in the span of about 120 years. And all of that is why the English and the French remained bitter enemies for so long. It's said that when Henry VII married his wife, who was herself a Plantagenet, that he brought about the Tudor reign, which was the joining of Lancaster and Plantagenet households. And he did. He had a son named Arthur, who was the living embodiment of this peace. Arthur dies, and he is eventually replaced by the new king of England, Henry VIII, who Shakespeare will also write about. This has been kind of fun going back and looking at these histories and trying to see how they all connect together, even though Shakespeare wrote them out of order. But nonetheless, Shakespeare builds a slow game here. And it's very possible that when he went in to write Edward III, that he was trying to finish his good friend's play, Edward III, by Christopher Marlowe. And it was his desire to try to bring his own tetralogy to fruition. Unfortunately, 
it gets banned. It gets banned in 1603 from the stages. Why? Queen Elizabeth dies and she's replaced on the crown by James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England. He immediately makes Shakespeare and his company the King's Men, but he also bans any play that makes fun of the Scots. And brother, let me tell you, the Scots are not treated well in Edward III. So this play becomes buried. It becomes lost. And that's a very good reason why it wasn't included in any of the first one, two, or three folios. They didn't know where it was, or they forgot about it. One side note that I mentioned that I want to do before I leave, and that is, I mentioned how Shakespeare used certain words and phrases and certain idiosyncrasies of how he wrote that give a thumbprint to who wrote what in what Shakespearean play. These thumbprints have been used by computers to try to simulate who wrote Shakespeare, since it's always a question. Now, they can't say for sure, this play is Shakespeare, or this play is not Shakespeare. But they can say, this play was written predominantly by one author, or only one author, or this play was written by multiple authors. All of the words in Edward III were put through such a computer program, and what they found was Shakespeare probably wrote about 40% of it. And most of that 40% is in the period where I said the play gets bogged down. And that's when King Edward III is trying to seduce the Countess of Salisbury. Not only is there a thumbprint that this is all Shakespeare's work for that entire Act 2 and most of Act 3, lines from his sonnets are found within the text of the play. He puts a clear marker on his work here, which is why we know it was Shakespeare, predominantly, who was involved in Edward III. Also possible that the main through line of the play was written by Christopher Marlowe, and Shakespeare took his dear dead friend's final work and put it on the stage. Join me next week for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF 785 Live, 75.com. I appreciate everybody tuning in, and as always, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.